This is Global Mining News, available worldwide on the internet. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I am online editor for the Northern Miner. I'm your podcast host. And I also hang out on our social media. So if you mention us or retweet us, we are ever grateful. Tweet our articles. You will be retweeted as long as there is nothing strange about your tweet. So take advantage of that. Get your name out there in the mining community. And yeah, it's starting to feel like 1968 out there a little bit. I never lived through the 60s, but I heard it was a very crazy time. I was talking to a friend on the phone last night. He's a lawyer, and he was talking to his 72-year-old lawyer friend. And yeah, the changes between 1959 and 1971 were dramatic. And you kind of wonder, with the pace at which things are happening, if we are on course for another 1960s-type decade. But I don't want to get your hopes up, so maybe let's just see about that. I just throw that out there. Uh, The world hanging by a thread, but the show must go on. So here we are, Northern Miner Podcast, and yet we have another fun show as we get ready for summer. We're going to do another one of our Scotch Tasting event interviews that was conducted by Northern Miner publisher Anthony Vaccaro. This time we're going to have First Cobalt CEO Trent Mell, and he's going to talk about his cobalt refinery that he's building in northern Ontario with help from Glencore. So it doesn't really get much bigger than that in the commodity space. And he says all sorts of interesting things. He talks about how, let me just look at my notes here, there is an avalanche of demand that is going to come from the electric vehicle market. He compares it to the advent of gasoline-driven cars. And there is going to be a tsunami of electric vehicle selection ahead of us. So we're going to have all sorts of options, according to Trent Mel. So that is our feature content coming up. And yeah, that was our first Northern Miner Scotch tasting event. So we did the second one last week, and now we're doing the first one today. Also, we have another Mining Minute with Gary Poxleitner, and he talks about cutoff grade, and so that's another exciting... It's funny when you can talk about a sponsorship as a feature, but I am excited to share this with you because it's quite educational, especially when you get an expert of Gary's caliber on the show. And so that is also coming up. And lest we forget, the Canadian Mining Symposium is a mere two weeks away. It is June 16th to June 18th, 2020, online also available worldwide, and it's a heavy hitter mining event. It is our flagship event, and we have quite a few events of, of different kinds these days. And But this has Sean Boyd of Agnico Eagle. It has Clive Johnson, president and CEO of B2 Gold. It has Don Lindsay from Tech Resources, Randy Smallwood, Wheaton Precious Metals, and Gord Stothart from I Am Gold. And also... We get our favorite analyst over here, at least at the podcast, Jeffrey Christian from CPM Group, and also Joe Foster, Portfolio Manager and Gold Strategist at Van Eck. So all sorts of stuff. There are other presenters as well. 
You can see that if you go to northernminer.com, click on that top banner, Canadian Mining Symposium, Critical Insights for a Critical Time. You can say that again. So that is coming up in a mere two weeks. I'm sure we'll get all sorts of great speeches from that. And so lots to look forward to. So if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner. You can find us on Facebook and LinkedIn and YouTube, where we have begun hosting these podcasts. And you can also find us on Spotify. We're there with Joe Rogan and wherever podcasts are available. And with that, let's turn to our mining minute with Gary Poxleitner of SRK Consulting. He is the principal mining engineer. Joining me is Gary Poxleitner, who is principal mining consultant at SRK Consulting. Gary, welcome back. And tell me, we were talking about cutoff grade and how we determine it last episode. What are the factors that are involved in cutoff grade optimization? Yeah, so like we said, it's a comparison between the cost for that one ton to produce and the revenue that it produces. And the cost is typically your mining cost, your operating cost, your GNA, but also your sustaining cost that goes into it. So it's not that simple, Adrian, because it's not just looking at that ton sitting on the ground. We have to look at the big picture of the whole mine. We have to understand what the mine's corporate goals are. For example, mine economics. If you have development or mineralized material, do you send it to the ore pass or do you not? And if you have, do you take that extra ring in your stove, the extra bench in an open pit? And so the best practice really is to step back and to run multiple trade-off studies at different cutoff grades and compare that to your objectives and choose the best cutoff grade that reflects your life of mine plan and produces economics, sustainability for your mind from an environmental and social responsibility point of view, and also long life to the mine. Interesting. So is that where, say, high grading might come in? And when you decide, oh, we want to, you know, maybe the corporate goal is to, maybe the gold price is low at a certain point and you want to mine the lower grade stuff. Is that what you mean? No, it's actually a bigger picture than that. So we don't want to necessarily just pick and choose during high cycles of commodity prices. You want to look at the best opportunity. So just because the gold price is high doesn't mean that you want to high grade certain areas. You still want to mine the lower areas. You want to keep a steady path. Again, you're looking at uh, not reacting, but making firm decisions ahead of time and following through on that. And that's why a cutoff grade determination, revisit it every year at your mind, uh, is the best practice to do. Very interesting. Okay, well, thanks again, Gary. And that was Gary Poxleitner, Principal Mining Consultant at SRK Consulting. You can find them at srk.com. And I'm also going to have links to Gary Poxleitner's page on srk.com. And I'm also going to have a link to his LinkedIn. So all sorts of ways to connect with Gary. And with that, let's turn to the news EPA declines to evaluate Northern Dynasty's Pebble Project despite concerns. Now, we were discussing Northern Dynasty's Pebble Project last episode, and they had made inroads where, I believe it was the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers had said, use a road, don't use the ferry to transport your ore, and... This was not what Northern Dynasty thought was a good idea, but they're going along with it, if that means they can go ahead with it. And again, this 
Pebble Project has been contentious for decades. It is in Alaska. It would be potentially North America's biggest mine, according to what I'm reading here, and if not the biggest, one of the biggest. And so it is a copper gold mine. So we have an update on that story. And this is by Cecilia Jamazmi from Mining.com. Northern Dynasty Minerals appears to be back on track towards obtaining final permits for its proposed massive copper gold mine in Alaska after the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA, declined to subject the project to water pollution restrictions evaluations, which have effectively stalled the project since they were outlined in 2014. It really seems like this whole project is all of a sudden getting fast-tracked. You cannot help but think this is a Trump initiative. It kind of has his fingerprints all over it. Who knows? Pure speculation on my part. The move reduces the likelihood of a potential confrontation with the Army Corps of Engineers over the company's proposed pebble copper gold silver mine near Bristle Bay in southwest Alaska. It also paves the way for a positive federal license decision this summer, which would allow Northern Dynasty's subsidiary Pebble Limited Partnership to begin building the mine. Pebble scored a big win last year after the EPA scrapped the proposed restrictions on mining operations in Bristle Bay, which prevented the project's consideration. Now, here's the rub. The agency also issued a letter saying the project, quote, may, unquote, result in substantial and unacceptable impacts to aquatic resources. Such observations was a specific step in a sequence established to deal with interagency disagreements over Clean Water Act permits. On May 28th, however, it issued a new letter downplaying the possible loss of streams and other wetlands the project might cause. You know, stepping back, yeah, this really does seem like it's got political interference written all over it, but again, just more speculation. And yeah, so continuing on, Christopher Haladik the agency's regional administrator for Alaska and the Pacific Northwest wrote to the Alaska district engineer, Colonel David Hibner, that the EPA still had concerns about the plan. The worries include the fact that dredging for the open pit mine, quote, may well contribute to the permanent loss of 2,292 acres of wetlands and 105.4 miles of streams. Northern Dynasty is calling it, quote, another indication of positive progress for the project. And I was just wondering, what about the fish? There's a salmon fishery, the biggest wild salmon fishery in the world, or one of the biggest freshwater. So let's see, we have a quote on that. Northern Dynasty said, quote, Our core principle has always been for the project to be done in a way that does not harm the fishery or water resources in Bristle Bay. Opponents to the mine say the EPA's new stance makes a potential veto on the Army Corps of Engineers' dredge and fill permit less likely. They noted that the agency and other key agencies have raised concerns the Corps has yet to address. And we have a quote from Bristle Bay Native Corporation Vice President Daniel Shayette, who said in a statement, quote, There are still many substantive issues with the project proposal that have yet to be resolved. And then Cecilia goes into a bit of the history, and uh, you can read that on northernminer.com. 
But yeah, just saying it has been a very contentious project and it has been fiercely debated for decades. Do they feel a timeline with the election coming? Who knows, but it is moving. So this was an interesting story, I thought. A late addition to this week's paper, streaming company Nomad Royalty lists on the TSX, and this is by the Canadian Mining Journal staff, Nomad Royalty, a new precious metals royalty and streaming company, will begin trading on the TSX on May 29th after completing a reverse takeover and acquiring the royalty portfolio of Yamana Gold and streaming assets from Orion Resource Partners. Let's look at the stock price. Let's see how it's done. And Nomad Royalty, they opened on Friday at $1.10 and they are trading at $1.41. Yesterday they were up 14.63%, so 15% higher, up 18 cents. People love those streaming royalty companies. I mean, after Franco Nevada's massive success, I believe they're the pioneers of this whole model. And so, yes, you have another one to look at. Only $1.41 per share at this point. Get in early. But who knows? I have no shares in this company, by the way. I'm just uh, editorializing here for a dramatic effect. And beware of all investments you do. But yeah, we're letting you know there is a new streamer on the markets, and that is on the TSX. So thank you, Canadian Mining Journal staff, for that article. Another good one from those guys. Visit them at CanadianMiningJournal.com. And here we go. Speaking of precious metals, I always find these stories a little strange these days. BMO raises their long-term precious metals price forecasts. Yeah, gold is sitting at over $1,700 for context. Here we go. This is from Northern Miner staff. BMO Capital Markets has hiked its long-run gold and silver price forecasts to $1,400 per ounce and $18.25 per ounce, an increase of 16.7% for gold and an increase of 6% from their previous forecast for silver. The bank's long-term price forecasts have been static since 2015, the analyst stated, noting that changing a long-term price is not something we take lightly and indeed do very often. Well, I second that sentiment. I, I you can say that again. I, sometimes I wonder. I mean, these are the experts, though, so let's get a closer look at what they're saying. In the nearer term, BMO analysts forecast gold prices to average $1,732 per ounce this year, a 5% increase over their earlier forecast, while silver is expected to average $17.60 per ounce in 2020, a 2% gain over their earlier estimate. But the analysts emphasize that higher precious metals prices won't encourage the same kind of reckless overspending and poor decision-making the industry experienced in the past. Well, that is another debatable point. I heard Jeffrey Christian in an interview just a couple of weeks ago talking about how he completely expects the same poor decision-making, paying too much money for overpriced assets will happen again. So it's interesting to see these uh, debating points, whatever side you take on them. So they continue in their report, which was written on May 29th, quote, Despite being a cliche in the investment world, this time really is different. We are not anticipating an elevated gold price will drive a return to the bad behaviors of the past, or at least not to a widespread extent. Growth for the gross sake has been shunned by investors and management teams alike. Costs are expected to remain relatively stable 
as low fuel prices and a strong U.S. dollar aid in maintaining cost bases. The analysts also predict a, quote, upward trend in free cash flow, end quote, even for some of the smaller players in the industry. And another quote, with so many gold producers generating free cash flow, it seems likely that the market may start to look at these companies as good businesses rather than just leverage ways to invest in gold. This can only bode well for asset allocation to the space. And so, yes, you can read more about this on northernminer.com. BMO raises their long-term precious metals forecast. We also have a story relating to lithium. And let's take a closer look at this. Lithium prices to jump as pandemic hinders expansions, analyst says. So... I got the impression, I haven't looked recently, but lithium was seemed to be under severe pressure. I'm not sure if that's relaxed at all. You could check. I think there's a lithium ETF out there. So if you do a search for that. Prices for lithium, one of the key ingredients for the batteries that power electric vehicles, EVs, and high-tech devices are expected to climb in two years. When shortages in the market caused by curtailed production and halted expansions start to emerge. So it sounds like all this COVID-19 stoppages may affect the lithium market. Car sales, EVs included, have plummeted this year as a result of the coronavirus pandemic that has hit global markets. In Western Europe, where EV sales were supposed to soar this year, acquisition fell by 90% in April. I guess that's hardly surprising. And nobody was out. Most people were sheltering in place. Continuing on, but demand is set to pick up, says Benchmark Mineral Intelligence, a battery supply research and price discovery company. And when that happens, quote, the supply side won't be able to react quick enough. Simon Moores, managing director at BMI, told Reuters news agency. Here we go. Before the coronavirus emerged, lithium prices were in free fall due to an avalanche of new supply. You really hear the word avalanche used a lot in lithium these days, as you'll hear in our feature interview. The glut, worsened by Beijing's cut in government subsidies for purchasers of EVs in China, the world's largest market, made majors tame their growth plans. BMI had forecast supply at 572,000 tons for 2023, but now sees that number at 543,000 tons. With a shortfall of 8,000 tons, the company believes the deficit in later years will grow significantly. And then there are some companies that Cecilia talks about, SQM, Albemarle, Mineral Resources. Feel free to check that out. And finally, we have a couple of Cadelco. Their profits are down 85%. They're Chile's biggest miner, despite output increase. Chile's Cadelco, the world's largest copper producer, saw a profit nosedive in the first three months of the year as prices for the metal dropped to an average of $2.49 per pound in the same period compared to $2.72 a year earlier. The state-owned miner reported an 85% decline in profit to $54 million in the first quarter of 2020, even though production climbed 6% to 361,000 tons. Lower costs, which fell 2% to $1.32 per pound copper, were unable to offset the slump in prices. And a global surplus of the metal may weigh further on Cadelco. Analysts warned the glut is expected to get worse over the next 18 months as market disruptions have created greater uncertainty in the factors affecting supply and demand for the metal. And this was stated by the International Rot Copper Council, also known as the IWCC, earlier this week. Cadelco 
output up, profits down, and finally, as we enter our metal prices section, B of A forecasts metal price recovery post-COVID-19. It's by Carly Williams, senior reporter. Bank of America forecasts global copper consumption could contract by 18% year over year. In 2020, should global GDP drop by an estimated 4.2% due to the economic disruptions caused by the coronavirus pandemic. So they are expecting a the very specific 4.2% global GDP drop, although a decline in copper purchases of this magnitude, quote, would be devastating for the red metal and also the wider mined commodities complex, end quote. The bank said in a research note today, it also noted that Chinese demand for copper rebounded during April. Although a decline in copper purchases of this magnitude, quote, would be devastating for the red metal, it also noted that the Chinese demand for copper rebounded during April. I heard they were stocking up. I mean, that's hearsay, but I heard they were sort of stocking up. Same with oil. Kind of scary in, in terms of the whole war situation. Yeah, you wonder what's going on. It's kind of a bit more paranoid out there. And the easing of lockdown restrictions across many countries, the bank said, should also lead to an increase in copper purchases elsewhere. Chinese rescue package worth 559 billion dollars US and the European Next Generation EU Recovery Plan, which is worth $835 billion, could help drive up copper consumption. So there is more on that. Carl talks about platinum and palladium and also gold a little bit. So yeah, check that out. Stimulus packages on the way. I mean, that's massive for Europe to put $835 billion into something That'll go a long way, I suspect. So copper consumption may be on the way up. And with that, let's turn to metal prices. prices. We'd like to thank our friends once again at infomine.com for sharing this information with us. And if you ever want to find it online, just do a search for Infomine and metal prices. And this page will appear. And on June 2nd, gold is trading at $1,739.87. That is $17 higher than last week. Silver is 97 cents higher at $18.27. And it hasn't seen that price since its last peak in our program at 1843. And that was four or five months ago. So silver is getting high. Will it break through or will it go back down? So silver doing really well again. Platinum is at $850.39 per ounce. That is $11 higher. Palladium is $11 lower at $1,957.03. And on May 29th, copper is at $2.42. That is $0.04 cents higher. Aluminum is at $0.69 cents per pound. That is $0.02 cents higher. Lead is unchanged at $0.73 cents per pound. Nickel is unchanged at $5.50 per pound. Tin is $0.05 cents higher at $7.08 per pound. Cobalt is unchanged at $13.38. 
likes that number. And zinc is also unchanged at 89 cents per pound. So things are looking good in the metals all round. I'd say the precious metals in particular are looking quite strong, flirting with their highs. And industrial metals are holding and even a little bit higher in certain areas. So all in all, looking good for the miners. And with that, those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Trent Mel, CEO of First Cobalt, and he is in conversation with Northern Miner Group publisher Anthony Vaccaro, and they are opening up the festivities at the Northern Miner Scotch Whiskey Tasting. This took place in the middle of May. We did two of them. And it was a lot of fun. Trent Mel talks about the cobalt market. And he also talks about his refinery that they're building in northern Ontario with help from Glencore. So I hope you enjoy it. And we'll see you on the other side. We do have a special guest here today. Trent Mel is the CEO of First Cobalt. He's kindly agreed to join us. He was hesitant until I told him there was McCollin Scotch involved, and then he somehow jumped right at the opportunity. Trent's going to update us on what's going on in the battery metals market, such a fascinating market, the one place where mining intersects with the massive green movement and the low-carbon future economy that we're also gunned up for. So, Trent, let's get it started. I have a question here for you. The World Bank stating that production of cobalt, lithium, and graphite is going to have to increase 500% by 2050 to meet demand. Now, when you saw that, did that number surprise you? Or is it in line with the trend line that you're seeing right now? Anthony, thank you, first off, for having me. And hello, everybody. We'll, uh, we'll keep the market update short and get on to uh, the order of business here. But yeah, I came out of the gold space. So I've been in the mining world for you know, 20 years. Yeah, the electric vehicle revolution, as I call it, it's unlike anything I've seen and that many of us will see in our lifetime. You know, this is like the advent of the gas engine vehicle 110, 20 years ago now. And the numbers are staggering. The amount of cobalt going into electric vehicles today is about 20,000 tons, projected to go over 500,000 tons. But, you know, when you start looking over decades, 2020 to 30 to 40, um, it's staggering. But when you think about what it represents, we're only at a 2% penetration right here in North America on electric vehicles. And if you want to see your way to even 10%, the amount of raw materials we're going to need to get there, we'll get smarter, we'll thrift, we'll, we'll make our batteries more efficient. But it is an absolutely staggering number. And anybody outside this space probably doesn't appreciate just what the avalanche of, of demand is going to be in our, in our world. And what are we seeing? I saw some interesting numbers in terms of EV sales in Europe. So even in a recessionary time, can you maybe share what those numbers were and whether they surprised you or not? Sure. So what I found fascinating is in March when the COVID uh, impacts started felt across Europe, started to shut down the economies. We were already past kind of peak car sales in this cycle, and they were they were coming down. But, you know, auto sales across Germany, uh, the UK and elsewhere were down, and yet EVs were were up on, on an absolute basis. And so the car industry is being hurt, but, but don't be mistaken. I think the UK last month, sales were down about 55% overall passenger sales, and yet electric vehicle sales were were up uh, twofold over uh, over the year prior. And so, you know, the, the march continues. And, and why? Well, it started in China. The vehicle selection is largely Chinese other than Tesla. Well, you got the Volkswagen ID3 about to hit the market next month. And there is going to be a tsunami of vehicle selections, BMW, Mercedes, 
Ford and others that are going to start to compete with Tesla in the uh, in the Western world. So it's going to be a fun couple of years ahead of us. Absolutely, exciting times indeed. The the ID three looks like a pretty cool machine. Now that's competing with Tesla at the lower end of the price spectrum. Is that correct? That's in the thirty forty k kind of range. Yeah, yeah, it is. And and for Europe though, that's not insignificant because they've got those mini compacts that we hate over here, right? And so you got the the Renault and others that have these small cars. Oh, BMW. I think it's the i3. They're just not very attractive cars for a North American. The ID3 is something that we would buy in this side of the pond. They're going to start there. I think more interesting, Anthony, is going to be when Ford gets in the game. They're going to delay a little bit. Uh, they were going to introduce the Ford Mustang uh, electric vehicle later this year, and they're working on an F-150. So pretty cool when some of these iconic vehicles start to make that transition. And why? Because you're, we're almost at cost parity on a combustion engine versus EV basis. Which is incredible. I think we've arrived there. When we started this conversation five years ago, that was the, the big issue. So the fact that in that short amount of time, we've gotten into early cost parity. Now, big issue that comes up. So it seems that the trend is firmly there. It's undeniable. The batteries are going to be there. But what about the trend in battery technology, right? We're hearing more talk now about solid state batteries being the next wave. Can you, in layman's turn, explain that and also talk about the implications for cobalt? Is the cobalt makeup the same, whether it's lithium batteries that are now in cars or whether it's a solid state one in the future? Yeah, there is a lot of um, nice misinformation around that. Can you take the cobalt out of the batteries? I'll talk a little bit about that as, as, as well as your your broader question. So, you know, in China, you do have zero cobalt batteries, LFP or lithium iron phosphate batteries. They're lower end. These are 100 kilometer range batteries. That, again, they, they won't work in the West. They're inexpensive, yes, uh, but you're not getting the range that we all need. And frankly, they're not as safe for the most part. They're not as safe. And the, the technology is getting better. So, the dominant cathode uh, that we see is the NCM, nickel co cobalt manganese. And at inception, we were, the raw material balance was about one third nickel, one third cobalt, one third manganese. And as a result of a, a number of factors, we've managed to reduce the cobalt. One is its scarcity and price. We had a, a good boom in 2017, early 18. And nickel is where you get the energy density. So your range comes out of nickel. And so we're at a point now where it's 60% nickel, 20% cobalt. We're moving to 80% nickel, 10% cobalt. You need that cobalt. You need the, the stability of the battery. Depends on a certain amount of cobalt, so you don't have a thermal runaway and batteries catching fire. And cobalt also ensures you get your 10-year battery. So nickel provides the energy, but cobalt provides... Uh, stability in the chemistry to allow you to have a safe long life battery. A solid state battery is, um, we're still a ways away. There's a number of technological challenges we need to get through. There's still three or four different competing interchanges. My understanding from Henrik Fisker, and uh, he's an EV entrepreneur who's on my board, you know, the cathode they're looking at is very similar to an NCM 622. So the raw materials balance doesn't change, but it, it is going to get you to a battery that can go, you know, twice the distance on the same loading of raw material. So it'll be big when it comes, but I think that's still many years away. Excellent. We know the importance and the crucialness of, of cobalt. Cobalt supply, as most people know, is coming largely from the, the DRC. You're building the first refinery to upgrade uh, and make cobalt sulfate. It's used in battery production. It's doing that right in Ontario. It's a, it's a really interesting story that we've been covering in the Northern Miner because it's an interesting story. We'll finish off on that. You give us an update on, on the company, but we have time for one question before that. Part of this is that you're dealing a lot with Glencore. Glencore controls a lot of yeah. the, the copper and out of the DRC. Whenever Glencore comes up, people that are on this call right now, everyone's interested. Everyone knows the history of Mark Rich, or if they don't, they should read up on Mark Rich, read up on Glencore. It's one of the yeah. greatest commodities trading outfits ever to exist. So what's it been like for you? Now, you had some past experience dealing with Glencore in a former nation with uh, North American Palladium, and now you're dealing with them about you know negotiating a deal to take the feed in at the refinery in Ontario. Can you give us a few uh, little inside baseball talk on what it's like dealing with Glencore and how that's all going? Yeah, sure. I get a lot of questions. I, 
just for my benefit, I popped up. This is our existing refinery behind my head here. And then this is the rendering of the solid extraction plant that we're going to be building up in Cobalt, Ontario. But let's, let's focus on your question. Glencore, when I was at North American Palladium back, uh, you know, 2007, 8, 9, 10, I think through 12, one of my jobs was to renegotiate smelter contracts for our nickel, uh, copper, PGE feed uh, that by some quirk of Ontario law had to be processed here in Ontario. And so in, today it's Valet and Glencore, but you got to go back to one of those two smelters and negotiate. And those were bloody hard negotiations. They're great negotiators. And anybody on this uh, on this line who knows Glencore and knows their reputation knows how challenging it can be. And there are no there's no shortage of, of bodies in the wake junior miners that that tried and, and and maybe got taken over ultimately or or, or taken apart uh, as they faltered under under a Glencore structure. You know our, our our situation is a little different, right? We've got the facility, we've got the permits that they need. It's the only one on the continent. And not to overstate our leverage, we're still a junior. I would also say that Glencore today is very different from it was even the Glencore that we had even five years ago. There is a whole new generation of leadership in uh, in Switzerland. They're all a fair bit younger than me. And there is a much stronger culture of compliance brought about by investigations and allegations that they're working their way through. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're not quite yet at the point of finalizing commercial contracts. And that's where, you know, I might lose a finger or two. But it's been it's been a good cordial relationship. And so for all of the pain and suffering I went through a decade ago, the process I'm going through now is it's much more cordial and, uh, and collaborative than I would have anticipated. So stay tuned, I guess. Yeah, well, that speaks to the direction that the world is going. And yeah, nothing uh, makes you fly more straight than a few SEC <laughs> investigations. That's for sure. They've been on the spotlight a little bit, uh, a lot lately. So I'm glad that that's having a net benefit for you. Uh, just lastly, we'll wrap up. Why don't you give us a little bit of an update? What do, what can uh, market watchers expect from First Cobalt? Yeah, so it, the Cobalt's a neat world, right? Two-thirds of Cobalt's coming out of the copper mines in the Congo. So you got artisanal labor issues, child labor ethics. Uh, and then you've got China in the case of battery grade sulfate, a cobalt sulfate. China is about 80% of that market. And so look, I've been to the White House. Uh, we've got the eye of the, both governments on both sides of the border. There is no cobalt mining other than byproduct and nickel operations in North America. So our business model is to bring feed via Glencore, take feed from their DRC commercial operations and process it in this building that you see behind me and to be the first provider of battery grade sulfate initially for Europe, they're a little more advanced than us, and ultimately for the North American market. And so feasibility study out last week, uh, we're doing some optimization work. We're having some really incredible talks with uh, EV manufacturers. These would be Europeans and North Americans. I'm sure you know who they are. I guess the, the go forward for us is to optimize. We've got a financing solution we're working on with Glencore, Glencore and maybe a third party, and then an offtake contract with an EV manufacturer. And, and then there's going to be a two-step. We've got to produce a product, qualify it with some automakers through a pilot plant, some kind of demonstration plant. And then by the end of next year, we expect to increase the throughput of this facility by about a factor of four and a half and uh, find ourselves in a production. So some fun, fun days ahead for us. Excellent. Thank you for that. Continue to watch with great interest. And of course, we, we wish you all the success in your endeavors. Now let's turn to the scotch tasting portion of the evening. Thank you, Trent. have your scotch with you I don't my bar is pretty empty you know I don't even really have a personal bar but on days like this sometimes you wish you did so thank you for once again joining us on the Northern Miner podcast it's a pleasure to have you each and every week we got all sorts of surprises coming up and again the Canadian Mining Symposium is right around the corner we're gonna have all sorts of really heavy-hitting speeches so lots to look forward to please share this podcast with your friends 
Leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. And until next week, take care.